chapter 22. We will pick up there in our journey through the book of Luke, chapter 22, beginning in verse 1. I'll read God's Word and then we'll ask for the Lord's help to understand it together. Luke 22, beginning in verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then the day came of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. This is the word of the Lord, friends. Pray with me, will you? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we ask now that you would do for us what the psalmist asked you to do, Lord. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. Please help us, Lord, to see the Lord Jesus more as he is. And that in doing this, Lord, we ask that our eyes would be enlightened and that our, our souls would be stirred. They would be revived, as the psalmist says. Please warm our often cold hearts to the reality of who Christ is, that we might worship him all the more. Please keep me from error now, Lord. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 
It is often said that death is the great equalizer. And history bears this out. It doesn't matter who you are or where you live. The one escapable fact for all men is that death will come for you. It doesn't matter, big or small, rich or poor, powerful or weak, sick or healthy. This reality is inescapable for all men. And what's more, not only can you do nothing about the fact that death is coming for you, but you cannot do anything about when death comes for you. You can't control when it happens. You can't control how it happens. And we certainly have no control over the effects of our death. The most powerful men throughout history have not been able to dictate their fate. That is, with one exception. Of course, the one exception is the Lord Jesus. You see, he is altogether different in this category because he controls all of the aspects of his death. Now, I'm not so grim as to just take delight in talking a lot about death. It really is that as we come to this portion of the narrative of Luke that we've been working through, it's of necessity that we consider this concept of death. Luke actually uses the circumstances of Jesus' death this morning to teach us something about the Lord Jesus himself. Luke is seeking to show us that Jesus is both the sovereign Lord and he is the sacrificial lamb. And Jesus uses these realities about death that others have no control over to prove what he's saying about the Lord Jesus. Luke shows that Jesus is the sovereign Lord by his control over the timing of his death. Luke shows that Jesus is the true and better sacrificial lamb by showing us the effects of Jesus' death. And these these lessons concerning the person and work of Christ all come to us as Luke paints three separate scenes for us throughout this passage. He he lays out three scenes. The first is the murderous plot of Jesus' enemies. The second scene is the mysterious preparation. And the third is the scene of the memorial of provision. The murderous plot, the mysterious preparation, and the memorial of provision provision. These three scenes Luke uses to teach us about the sovereign Lord and the sacrificial lamb. So let's let's look to the text now and consider what the Lord would teach us from each of these scenes. As Luke begins to tell the story of the sovereign Lord becoming the sacrificial lamb, he opens with a scene exposing the murderous plot of Jesus' opponents. And this first scene, in conjunction with the second scene that Luke sets forward in our text, it it, it makes one simple point. And that point is that Jesus' sovereign purposes always prevail over the fiercest forces of both man and Satan. 
We read in verse 1 that the timing of these malicious plans was as the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near. And as we read from Exodus 12 just a moment ago, this was the time when the Passover was to be celebrated by the Jews. However, this Passover was destined to be different. Luke tells us that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put Jesus to death. Yet in all of their earthly wisdom, these religious leaders were unable to find an opportunity to do this. With Jesus having captured the hearts of so many, there was a real risk of an uprising against the religious leaders if they seized him openly. But what Luke wants us to see is that while the, while the crowd was certainly a fear of the chief priests and the scribes, that is not what kept their plan at bay. What kept their treachery at bay was the sovereign will of the one that they sought to destroy. This is not the first time that we find Jesus resisting the will of men to hijack the redemptive plan of God. You'll remember that Jesus, after feeding the 5,000, perceived the will of those around him. He perceived that the Jews would seek to seize him and make him king. But Jesus withdrew himself from them because he refused to allow his ministry and his eternal decree to be informed or conformed to the will of man. So also... In this scene, we find that with all of the the knowledge and the resources, with all the natural wisdom that these religious leaders possessed, which is not insignificant, by the way, they failed to eliminate Jesus on their timeline. And that, friends, is because the will of man can never thwart the divine will. It is obvious from Luke's account that these men of power were were fixated on their own desires and not on God and the realization of His will being worked out through Jesus. We know this because this is but one instance of at least five times in the last few chapters that Luke speaks of the religious leaders fearing not God, but the people. See, when men are wholeheartedly devoted to God and His desires, they embrace submission to Him regardless of the consequences that they may face from any other. And so Luke makes plain to us that these characters, however pious they may have appeared to outsiders, they sought only to sustain their relative power, not to submit to God's redemptive purposes. Yet, Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, has proved too much for them to handle. Too too much for them in and of themselves to take hold of and have their will be done. So another diabolical character enters the narrative here. And if you're familiar with the story, then you may be tempted to think that I'm talking about Judas Iscariot. But he is simply another man. And while he might be more familiar with the the patterns and rhythms of Jesus than the religious leaders of the day, he is still just another man. A man, it would seem, of lesser worldly wisdom and resources than any of the Jewish officials. 
So Luke, having shown that the plans of man come to nothing before the sovereign Lord, he next speaks of another who enters the picture to pervert the plans and purposes of God. He brings into the picture none other than Satan himself. We're told in verse 3 that it was at this point when the chief priests came up short in their schemes that Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot. And it's with this satanic emboldening that we are told he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And take, take note, friends, this is a key element of the redemptive plan which is revealed to us in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. Remember that in the grand narrative of redemption, Jesus came not only to save God's elect, he came also to crush the head of the serpent who brought about the temptation which made man's salvation necessary. This, this is a clear and ever-present reality throughout the New Testament. This war uh, against not just Jesus and sin, but Jesus and Satan. It's Paul in Colossians 2.15 that says that Jesus in his accomplishment of redemption disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. So it's no surprise that here Luke shows the schemes of Satan to be working against the eternal plan of God. But there's something else here, isn't there? We can't move on from this point without addressing the, the elephant in the room that not only those who appeared to be religious to the world, but one who appeared righteous by his association with Jesus are now all clearly allied with and even possessed by Satan to oppose God. So, are, are we to take from this that those who identify with Jesus can somehow fall from grace? And, and, and worse yet, somehow find themselves to be instruments of Satan? And the answer depends on just what's meant by such a question. If the question is simply concerning those who've identified themselves with Jesus externally, trusting in their appearance of godliness by their religious rituals and their good works, if, if that is the answer, then, or excuse me, if that is the question, then the answer from Scripture is a clear yes. Those individuals have no reason to believe that they have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Jesus is unequivocally clear about this in Matthew chapter 7 when he says, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And what is his response to them in the very next verse? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. But the key, you see, is in Jesus' designation that he never knew them. It's not true that Christians can fall from grace. But one can deceive others and even deceive themselves into believing that they have experienced 
the saving grace of Christ in the first place. The Apostle John is perhaps most clear about this and how it is we characterize the seemingly religious when he says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Luke himself tells, in, in, in recording Jesus' words in chapter 3, what characterizes the true children of God. It's in chapter 3 of Luke's gospel that Jesus says to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. The one who is truly united to Christ, you see, recognizing, recognizes the sinfulness of their heart and their inability to save themselves. And therefore, they live lives with humble hearts, marked by turning from sin and obedience to Christ out of gratitude for the grace shown to them. But this does demand of us sober and sustained evaluations of what we're trusting in for salvation. Because the scriptures are clear that self-deception is real. And that apart from the working of God's grace, that self-deception can be damning. Even the most ardent of those who simply profess faith can ultimately find themselves to be enemies of God rather than allies of God. It's something quite different to profess faith, friends, than it is to possess faith. And that's what we find here. Therefore, we should not be surprised that it is both evil men and the evil one scheming together in this murderous plot. And as they do, we find that the chief priests and Judas were, were all too pleased to exchange the going rate of a slave as a ransom for the betrayal of Christ. Now, to be sure, Jesus will go on to endure humiliation and agony. That, that is not something that he's seeking to avoid in this text. In fact, the text goes on to state that his death is or has been determined from eternity past. The triune God has willed that Jesus would be crushed and put to grief. He will ultimately go to the grave. But it is to accomplish his purposes on his terms. And it will be on his time, you see. Both the evil one and the ungodly are bent on seeing Jesus' demise in a swift and self-serving manner. At this scene, one can't, one can't help but recall the words of the prophet Isaiah. When speaking of those in rebellion against God, he says, Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. But scheme as they may... Neither man nor Satan can fast-track or frustrate the predetermined will of God. And the second scene of the text advances that idea that no man can 
fast track or frustrate the predetermined will of God. In the second scene Luke paints for us, we're told of the the mysterious preparation. We've already learned that the, the timing here is that of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The observance of the Passover meal is what initiated this week-long celebration. And our text makes clear that Jesus greatly desired to celebrate this meal with the disciples. In verse 15, Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And, and, and why? We're obviously meant to ask the question, why? Well, because he wanted to show them that all that was remembered in this meal was but a shadow of what they were soon to see him fulfill. So he would not let the rage of the ungodly alter in any way his pace or progression to the cross. Therefore, when the day came on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed, verse 8 says that Jesus looks to two of his most trusted disciples, Peter and John. And he tells them, go and prepare the Passover for us. These two would have been certainly... Uh, well-oriented uh, and familiar with all that this Passover meal entailed and what was necessary to prepare it, no problem. And they ask a, a simple question. Oh, by the way, where would you have us prepare it, Lord? But fully conscious of the fact that the betrayer is in their midst, he gives them a most peculiar set of instructions. He doesn't say, oh yeah, well, you remember Joe Fred. He, he's got that house over on 6th Street. He's got plenty of room there. And you know, he, he said that we're, we're welcome to, to do it there. He says we can use it. So just go on over to his house and make everything ready there. No. Look at what he says in verse 10. Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house. The teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. Now there's debate over whether Jesus set this whole arrangement up through the use of supernatural means or just by prearrangement. But the truth is that the text doesn't tell us. And we shouldn't impose on the Bible something that it doesn't give to us. That's why we're committed to expositional preaching here, by the way. That's another story. What we do know is that this was an unusual thing for a man to be carrying a pitcher of water. Men would usually carry uh, water in skins rather than in jars. So, so this was an intentional signal that would be provided for the disciples that Jesus chose to send. We also know that given the desire of the, the chief priest and the officers to seize Jesus in the absence of a crowd, as the text tells us, this celebratory meal would have been the ideal moment for them to do so. Yet, even as the, the enemy was in the camp, as it were, even as the, the demonically possessed traitor found his place among the ranks of the disciples, gathering as much information as he could, Jesus subverts the forces of evil to accomplish exactly what he intends. 
So whatever one may conclude about Jesus setting up this operation by supernatural means or by prearrangement, that the main point is that Jesus was superintending this situation in order to ensure that this event wouldn't be interrupted. Because he was about to provide for the church a symbol of atonement that down through the ages would prove to be most encouraging and edifying and sustaining to their souls. Friends, it it may seem like a, a small thing that Jesus would remain consistent with his own pace and progression to the cross. It may seem like a small thing that he simply wouldn't let the will of Judas or the others get in the way. I mean, after all, what's the harm in rearranging a few events on the way to the cross as long as ultimately the will of God was fulfilled? It may seem like a small thing. But what has to be appreciated about this scene is that every evil power in the known universe was bearing down in this moment on Jesus, dead set on seeing his demise. And Jesus says, no, no. I have one more teaching appointment. No, he says, I have one more blessing that I want to give to those that will bear my name for generations to come. You see, so far from from being a distant and disinterested God who's not concerned with the affairs of life, we have a God who is so concerned with accomplishing His intentions for His children that He would not let them be robbed of even one of His sweet blessings. It it means, brothers and sisters, that you can rest assured that whatever woes that you may experience in this world, they are in no way outside the control or or even the intentions of God for your life. That's not meant to say that God has resigned you to endure those hardships forever, but it does mean that no part of your human experience is wasted in His designs for conforming you to the image of His Son. Because he has absolute control over all the affairs of this world. Even those, it would seem, that work against his desires and decrees. You know, we we often sing that lyric, No power of hell, no schemes of man can ever pluck me from his hand. And that's... Obviously, absolutely true. But what's made evident in this passage is that the truth goes far beyond that. We could rightly sing that no no power of hell, no schemes of man could ever affect one element of his sovereign plan. And we see that sovereign plan come to fruition in the next scene of our text. The next scene Luke takes us to is the moment that Jesus desired to guard from any intrusion, the moment when Jesus sets up the memorial of provision. Verse 14 says, And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. 
And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. The Passover meal was instituted in Exodus 12, again, as we read earlier. It was the meal of celebration that God had commanded be observed just prior to his freeing his people from slavery in Egypt. He also commanded that it be held as an annual celebration of remembrance throughout all the generations of Israel to come. Now, there were, there were several elements of the meal that, that we just don't have time to unpack today. But the central element of the meal, both in the original Passover and in the annual celebrations that followed, was the lamb. God commanded the Hebrews on that first Passover to take a lamb without blemish. The lamb was to be sacrificed and its blood smeared over the doorway of the home. In this way, those in the home would be spared from death in the tenth plague when God passed through Egypt to slay all of the firstborn. Then the Israelites were to roast and eat the lamb with the meal. So you see, the, the lamb was the central element because it's by its blood that they were saved from the judgment of God. The, the blood of the Passover lamb distinguished the people of God from the unbelieving Egyptians. And every year in eating it, they celebrated God's deliverance of them out of bondage in Egypt and his leading them out to establish them as a nation, as his holy nation. This meal was that which immediately preceded the great exodus. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this exodus from Egypt was understood to foreshadow a greater exodus that the people of God would one day experience. So it would have been no new thing for Jesus to observe this celebratory meal with his disciples. But we're left to ask the question, why is it that Jesus so earnestly desired to eat this Passover with them. Why did he guard it so? Well, he answers that for us in verse 16, saying, For, purpose clause, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And in saying this, Jesus makes clear that what they're about to witness in his suffering and death will be the fulfillment of everything that this meal symbolized. And that it won't be celebrated in the same way anymore. All who take hold of this fulfillment by faith, he will celebrate this meal anew with them in heaven. Thus, as Jesus begins to show how the Passover finds fulfillment in him, he alters the celebration of it. Whereas the Passover had been a meal to memorialize the provision God made for the Israelites, now Jesus instituted a meal that memorialized the greater provision that he was making for all peoples and nations. As such, we read in verse 19. Look there with me. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So re retaining some of the elements of the Passover meal, Jesus 
takes the bread and gives thanks for it. Yet after that, he begins teaching the new way in which his followers should engage in this memorial meal. After giving thanks, he breaks the bread and says that it represents his body. And just as the bread is broken to be divided and then it's crushed into bits in the mouth, so Jesus' body would be broken and crushed in his torment as he stood in the place of sinners to absorb the wrath of God for us. Jesus then gives them the imperative to do this. He commands that those who belong to him should make it their practice to eat this meal. And not only does he say to eat it, but he specifies how to partake in it. We do so not as some think that Jesus is offered as a sacrifice anew each time the Lord's Supper is offered. No, no. We partake of this meal in remembrance of the once for all time sufficient sacrifice of Christ. Recognizing that our sin against an infinite eternal God merited infinite eternal punishment. But the debt is settled because they've been absorbed by an infinite eternal Savior. Verse 20 goes on to tell us that likewise Jesus took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Church, it is hard to overstate the gravity of this moment and the statement that Jesus makes. Because what he is saying in no uncertain terms here is that the long-awaited new covenant, which Israel had anticipated for hundreds of years, was coming to realization through Jesus' sacrifice. All good Israelites knew that this day would come because it was promised in Jeremiah 31. There the prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. It's truly glorious, friends. It it was the promise that God would deal definitively with the sin that separates His people from Him. Under the Old Covenant, sins had to be paid for through continual offering of costly sacrifices. And a, a, a gracious provision it was, no doubt, as God does not owe forgiveness to anyone, but... In the work of Christ, we find a grace that is more glorious than man can even imagine. 
Just listen to the juxtaposition of the two covenants from the author of Hebrews. Speaking of the old covenant administration in Hebrews chapter 10, the author says this, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And, and this, this is what we are to remember as we partake in the cup. And remember, the, the lamb was the central element of the Passover meal. But take note, there is no lamb in this new supper that the Lord Jesus institutes. There is no lamb prescribed to be eaten in this new meal. Because the blood of the true, spotless, sacrificial lamb has been shed once for all. For the remission of sins. It's in this way that the sovereign Lord became the sacrificial lamb. And he has given his church this multi-sensory tool in the elements of the supper. A tool meant to remind us every time we eat it of the fact that we could never drink the cup of God's wrath owed to us. And we could certainly never secure eternal righteousness before God. Now, as made clear through the prophet Jeremiah, only God could do that. And so we see here that faithful to his promises, the sovereign Lord indeed became the sacrificial lamb for just these reasons. Now, before the scene draws to a close, we're told that what the disciples were oblivious to in the beginning of the text is revealed to them, at least in part, at the end of the meal. Namely, that there was a traitor in their midst. After offering the cup, Jesus says in verse 21, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Now there's a whole other sermon here just in this verse on the doctrine of divine concurrence, that relationship between God's sovereignty and the existence of evil in the world, but we don't have time for that today. I wouldn't make you sit for it. However, what we must recognize here is that Jesus is providing a final warning to Judas. He, he makes clear that under the providence of God, his life must be delivered up to the religious leaders and to the Roman government. He must die at their hands. He's also clear that God, being free from sin and unable to tempt anyone, will allow Jesus, Judas' own wicked heart to bring this to pass. But it must be understood 
that just because God will allow for and use the sinful deeds of men to accomplish His foreordained plans, He in no way excuses the inherent wickedness of those deeds. Yes, this Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. But Judas' unbelieving heart foolishly had him assuming on the sheepishness of Christ. His satanic emboldening caused him to treat Christ as a harmless little lamb. And Jesus at the table with Judas is saying, Woe to you who are blind to the fact that I am the sovereign Lord. And there's one more point to be made as we draw this text to a close. And we glean that point from the response of the disciples to this news of a betrayer. At this startling news, the, the disciples begin to ask questions about who the betrayer is. Now, the ESV uses the phrase, they began to question one another, as though they were almost interrogating one another and pointing the finger at one another. But, but interestingly enough, other translations of this verse and the other gospel accounts make it clear that when they're asking these question, questions, They're really asking with a humble, introspective heart. Listen to the way it's recorded in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 22. Matthew writes, And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after the other, Is it I, Lord? And friends, as we consider the significance of the Lord's Supper, and we prepare to take it today... That's the heart which we're to approach the Lord's table with. Of course, not not asking if we're the ones who will deliver Christ up to his death. But is it I, Lord, who've been self-deceived? Maybe this morning you aren't convinced that you need eternal hope at all. And like Judas obviously did, you think that there's no cosmic justice. To you, friend, hear me. There is a sovereign Lord who will bring judgment against all who are not united to Christ by faith. But that's just it. Because Christ is the sacrificial lamb, you can look to him in faith. And in looking to Him in faith, you can be saved from the wrath of God that is to come. Friend, do that today, won't you? Look look to Christ in faith. And find all your needs for eternal life met in Christ, the Passover Lamb. But even for those who profess faith in Christ this morning... Probing questions remain as we approach the table. Do I really believe that all of my eternal hope is found in the broken body and the shed blood of Christ? Or have I, consciously or unconsciously, subconsciously perhaps, begun trusting in my own works of righteousness? Arrogantly thinking that I can merit some kind of favor with God. Maybe you've been begun to be plagued by the thought that 
There's a sin in your past that God could never forgive you for. Or maybe that sin will simply render you useless in the kingdom of God. All these things come up in the mind of a Christian. But as we approach the Lord's table, we remember that Christ's blood, friend, is the only plea that we have before the throne of God. And it is a far better plea than anything that we could offer. Because the Father has already said of Jesus, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The blood of this sacrificial lamb, we remember, is both sufficient and effective to pay the penalty for all your sins because of who He is. He is both the sovereign Lord and the sacrificial lamb. Amen? Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for this wonderful reality that in the Lord Jesus we have one who is so merciful and gracious as to offer his own body and blood. The only body and blood that is sufficient for forgiveness of sins. And he pours it out willingly for us. Father, we pray this morning that in contemplating these realities about Christ, Lord, that we'd be drawn to repent of our self-exaltation and self-righteousness. That we'd be drawn to repent perhaps for the first time this morning. And that we, we would begin submitting to the one who is the sovereign Lord and the sacrificial lamb. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.